Well, the real estate market in our area is no news to you, has been crazy over the last few years. Um, and I'm not sure in a hot market like ours uh, if this statement is true or not, but it used to be that um, the first rule of buying and investing was, of course, location, location, location. Um, well, when it comes to Bible study, uh, there is a similar rule, and that rule is context, context, context. Um, if we want to understand what a text means, we have to um, understand and remember that a particular verse is located in a particular passage, and a pa passage is a part of a particular chapter, and a chapter is a part of a particular book or letter, and that book or letter is a part of either the Old or New Testament, and both of those testaments together are the Holy Scriptures. And in the words of our larger catechism, they are the Word of God, the only rule of faith and obedience. That means to understand what's going on in chapter 29 that we come to tonight, we need to remember what occurred leading up to it. In other words, we can't understand chapter 29 if we simply, if we simply lift it up out of Genesis and isolate it as if it occurred unrelated to anything that happened before or uh, moving ahead. So, for example, we know that in chapter 12, Jacob's grandfather Abraham deceived Pharaoh and profited from it because Moses wrote that Pharaoh gave him sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But most commentators and scholars agree that Hagar was one of those Egyptians given to Abraham, which we know led to a great deal of family conflict moving forward. Now, we know in chapter 26, Jacob's father Isaac deceived a king by the name of Abimelech. But Moses said the Lord blessed him. He said, he became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants. But that didn't end well either, if you remember, because the Philistines began to fill the wells that kept them from receiving water, and so Isaac had to be on the constant move. We know in chapter 27 that Jacob deceived his very own father to, to take the blessing from his older brother. But what happened to him? He received the blessing, but now he's on the run. He's running from that older brother who desires to kill him. And we will learn later, of course, that family conflict will be for years to come. But there's more. Because we saw last week in chapter 28 that while Jacob was on the run, God blessed him. God revealed himself to him, and he didn't reveal himself in judgment. He didn't stand over Jacob in judgment. He actually extended the covenant promises to him. You remember, he said, behold, God said to Jacob, behold, I am with you. I will keep you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. That means for the next 
five chapters that will encompass about 20 years. We must see those chapters in those years in the context of those promises. So based on the context, we know that even though Moses, in the words of Gordon Wenham, shares no theological comment at all in this chapter, and even though we don't even read read of God being present until verse 31, God was in fact working providentially in Jacob's life to fulfill what He had promised him. So despite the self-reliance of a father-to-be that we will see in Jacob, and despite the fraudulence of a father-in-law that we'll see in Laban, the love of our Father in heaven was on full display in the midst of it all. You see, this is a love story. But it's not so much a love story of, or the love story of Jacob and Rachel as it is the love story of God and His people. The love story of Jacob and Rachel simply points to the love story of Christ, the better Jacob, and the church. The outline is in its usual place. You'll find it in the back of your bulletin. Children, you'll find your words in their normal place as well. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we continue. Father, we ask for you to work by your Spirit and give us eyes and ears to understand your Word so that as it is preached, our hearts are convicted and our minds are renewed and our faith is strengthened and our wills and you, and, our, and our wills are fortified may we receive your word gladly and with anticipation and i ask as always that you would fill me with your spirit that i might be a pure channel of your grace attend to me as i do this work you've called me to do and use me as you see fit and in for uh, in, in the name of and for the sake of the lord jesus i pray Amen. Well, after receiving the promise, we saw last week after receiving the promise and making the vow and, and setting up a spiritual marker and offering praise and thanksgiving through worship, Jacob made his way to Padan Aram in the east as his mother and father had instructed him. And the next 13 verses that I read just a moment ago may have and really should have sounded very familiar, because what happened is very similar to what happened back in chapter 24, when Abraham sent his servant to the same place to find a wife for Isaac. Jacob and the servant, if you remember, they, they both end up at a well. Could be the same well, we don't know, we're not told. But they both believed that the well that they were at was exactly the right place at exactly the right time because a beautiful woman appeared. And that woman, the, the women, both of these women introduced themselves as being from the exact family that the two were, were looking for. And the men were both overjoyed with their success. And they introduced themselves, who they were and why they had come. And then... Both daughters ran home and told Laban, and Laban, in both instances, run, runs to meet uh, his kinsmen. But in the midst of all these similarities, there is a very 
very glaring difference between the two scenarios. If you remember, repeatedly in chapter 24, we, uh, we were told that the servant exhibited a dependence upon the Lord, and that dependence was exhibited through prayer. And he prayed not only for his success for the sake of for Abraham, but also that the Lord would re- reveal the right woman and that um, the woman would be right because of her, her good character. Moses said the servant took time to discern whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. And the servant, if you remember, responded to the success that he experienced by twice falling down and bowing down and worshiping the Lord. So over and over again, we saw his reliance on the Lord. It was on, all, it was, it was on display for everybody involved to see. He didn't hide back from those that were around. But here in chapter 29, we see something completely different from Jacob. We don't see a display of reliance upon the Lord. We see a display of self-reliance. We don't see prayerfulness. We see prayerlessness. We don't see him asking the Lord for success. We see him simply seeking to orchestrate time alone with Rachel by sending the other shepherds away. And then we see him seeking to impress her by flexing his muscles and and moving the stone on his own, something that would have normally taken several men to do. And then he kisses her, which was a normal way to greet family. And then having kissed her, he wept for joy. But notice we're not given any explanation for the joy. What What was the reason for the joy? Is it... Was he happy because he found the wife? Was he happy because she was beautiful? Was he happy because she showed up with sheep, and so he knew that her family was a family of means? We don't know. What we do know is that he didn't bow his head in worship. He didn't bow and worship the Lord. There was no acknowledgement of the providential work of the Lord, no expression of gratitude to the Lord for his success. We see a man simply trusting in his own work and effort. And brothers and sisters, we need to ask ourselves, in light of that, are we characterized by prayerfulness or prayerlessness? Are we characterized by reliance upon the Lord or or self-reliance? As I asked a month ago, Is prayer our last resort or our first option? Does our prayer life reflect a a reliance upon a sovereign God and His providential work in our life in the day-to-day? Or does our prayer life reflect reliance upon ourselves and our own work and our own effort? Do we respond in praise and worship for the prosperity and the success that we experience, or are we simply exercising and simply being self-congratulatory as if we've earned it or deserved it in some way? Well, Laban runs to Jacob and welcomes him as his kinsman. But I'm sure he realized things were vastly different this time around. Remember, when the servant showed up last time, he placed... Jewelry on Rebecca, 
And he had a caravan of 10 camels. And he had choice gifts for the bride price. So Laban more than likely runs and thinks, hey, maybe it'll be the same way. But he arrives and what? Rachel doesn't have any jewelry on. There's no caravan. And there's no choice gifts for the bride price. The kin, kinsman, therefore, the kin, kinsman or the son must become a servant. But rather than set the wages himself, as a father would probably do, Laban allows Jacob to do it. Notice what Jacob says in verse 18. Jacob says, I'll, I'll serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. The going rate for regular labor was a half shekel to a full shekel per month. Um, and so Jacob would have been earning anywhere from 42 to 84 shekels, was, which was well beyond a typical bride price. And Laban knew it. So he agreed. The problem was Rachel had an older sister. And according to custom, older sisters needed to be married before younger sisters. And, and to make matters worse, Leah's not really attractive. So not only was there no one interested in Leah at the time, Laban's probably thinking nobody's going to be interested in Leah before the seven years are up. So he's got to come up with a plan. And he does, but it's a fraudulent one. Well, even though it only seemed like a few days because, his, because of his love for her, Jacob wasn't going to let a minute go by past beyond uh, what he had served for Rachel. And so when those seven years are up, he goes to Laban. He says, I've kept my end of, the, uh, end of the deal. You need to keep your end of the deal. Give me Rachel. And so Laban planned the customary week-long party that most, if not all, commentators agree, included a lot of drinking. And in the dark of night and cloaked in the fog of too much wine, Laban brought a veiled woman into Jacob's tent. Jacob assumed it was Rachel. And they consummate the marriage. But in the light of the morning and with the clear head of sobriety, Jacob realized it wasn't Rachel, it was Leah. And Jacob's question and Laban's answer inform us exactly regard, inform us regarding what exactly took place, what had happened between the two of them. Jacob asks, why have you deceived me? Very important question coming from Jacob. And Laban answered, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. In other words, the deceiver had become the deceived. The younger brother who had transgressed the, the customs and sees the blessing from the older brother was now having to honor the customs and honor the older daughter. He whose brothers were supposed to serve him was now to serve others. 
He who had deceived his father was now being deceived by his father-in-law. And he didn't just serve for seven years. He had to serve for seven. He served seven for Leah, seven for Rachel, and then six more for the flocks. So this is a total of 20 years of servitude. And beloved, at particular points in the lives we've seen over the last few chapters, why I started the way I did, because we have seen in the lives of the patriarchs that it has appeared as though they had not only gotten away with the lies and the deception and the, and the fraudulence, but they had also profited from it. They were better off because of it. But when we take a closer look, we realize and we find that even, even though God continued to bless them despite their sin, they weren't immune from trouble. In the end, we see that what Paul said in Galatians 6 is true. Whatever one sows, he will also reap. We see also what Moses said in Numbers 32 is true as well. Your sins will find you out. But this is where the context is so very important. Jacob did reap what he sowed. Jacob's sins did find him out. He was suffering the consequences of his actions, no doubt. But the consequences weren't the form of punishment at the hands of a God who was a tyrannical dictator. As if God, in the words of another pastor, was sitting in heaven and cracking his knuckles, his cosmic knuckles, and laughing some maniacal laugh. It's not what's going on. The consequences Jacob experienced were a form of discipline that resulted from the love of our Father in heaven. Remember, even though God wasn't mentioned in the first 30 verses, He was working providentially. He was leading Jacob to Padan Aram. He was guiding him to this well. He was orchestrating the whole situation, and He was doing so because He had made a promise that He would never leave or forsake Jacob. Brothers and sisters, the latter hadn't disappeared. He was doing for Jacob what he does for you and me every day. In spite of his sin, despite his self-reliance, despite his prayerlessness, despite his lack of wisdom, God took care of him and brought about what was best for him. It was it was because of Jacob's sin and because of his self-reliance and because of his prayerlessness and because of his lack of wisdom that the Lord disciplined him. But the Lord disciplined him because he loved him. Jacob thought he came to Padam Aram to find a wife, but that wasn't the only reason. God brought Jacob to Padan Aram so that his future father-in-law could be used as an instrument of his sanctification. God brought Jacob to Laban 
in the words of Alan Ross, for discipline that would bring his own deception before his own eyes. And Dr. Ross goes on to say, even though God's people may experience God's blessing on their endeavors, God will effectively discipline them by making them painfully aware of their unresolved sins. God may wait patiently before discipling or disciplining His people, but discipline He will often using means similar to the offense to correct them. If they sowed iniquity, they will reap sorrow. If they sowed the wind, they will reap a whirlwind. Whatever they have sown, they will reap. And then he says this, if we are like Jacob, thrown together with people who are crafty and arrogant and deceitful and contentious and gossipy or a host of other human frailties, before we lament that we have to be around such people, we perhaps should take a long look at ourselves. It may be that some of those traits characterize us and that other people may be a part of God's means of disciplining us. Brothers and sisters, there may be some in the room tonight whose sins need to find them out. You may think you're getting away with your sin. You may think that your sin is no big deal. But please know that it would be a great mercy if your eyes, if God would open your eyes to see your sin. May the Lord grant you that mercy and also grant you the grace of repentance. There may be others tonight in the room who are well aware of your sin. And you need to be reminded that being aware of your sin is a blessing, not a curse. And those who have been in or are in the midst of the Lord's discipline, you need to be reminded that His doing so, that discipline is because He loves you. Our Heavenly Father loves us too much to let us flounder in the midst of our self-reliance. Our Heavenly Father loves us too much to, to let us dwell in and remain in our prayerlessness. Our Heavenly Father loves us too much to leave us in our sin. He's willing. He loves us so much that He is willing to do whatever it takes to conform us into the image of His Son, even if it hurts. And thanks be to God that He has promised to continue to work, to continue to work in us and complete what He He has started. And children, I mean, can't think I'd talk about discipline without addressing you, right? Boys and girls, I hope you know that the Lord uses your parents as instruments of discipline in your lives. He uses them to correct you and to train you and to mold you and to make you into the sons and daughters He desires you to be. And I know that sometimes that discipline hurts. 
But please know, you are a gift from the Lord to them. And like the Lord, they want what's best for you. So you shouldn't question them if they discipline you. You should question them if they don't. Because a lack of discipline reflects a lack of love. Discipline reflects not only their love for you, but God's love for you as well. And parents, surely you didn't think I was going to leave you out. Saving your children from the consequences of sin is not in their best interest. The consequences of their sin are a means through which the Lord disciplines And they are perfect opportunities and teachable moments for you to exercise both love and logic as you train them up in the way they should go. Do not neglect that opportunity. Do not neglect that opportunity. Well, the love of our Father in heaven is not only reflected in His discipline, We also see it's reflected in his care for the downcast and for those who have been cast off. Jacob loved Rachel. It's obvious. He may have loved her from the first time he saw her. If he didn't, his early infatuation grew to love quickly. So we're not surprised in verse 30 when he tells us, when Moses tells us that he loved her more than Leah or Leah. But we are taken aback, or we should be taken aback, when we read in verse 31 that Leah was hated. Because what we're told is that the one who was used is now being blamed. And the resentment being directed at her, of course, left her feeling isolated and alone. But while her sister and And her husband had cast her off. The Lord had not. She remained worthy of his concern. And he blessed her by opening her womb and giving her children. And in the midst of these tawdry circumstances that she found herself in, the Lord expressed compassion to her. And he used her. This is remarkable. He used her to fulfill his promises. She is the one through whom the line and the seed would come. Not Rachel. She may have been dishonored by her father and dishonored by her husband, but she would be honored by the Lord. He was going to bestow glory upon her in granting her children. And we read of those first four children in the last part of chapter 29. Not only are their names given, but the reasons for them. Look at verse 31. And Leah conceived and bore a son. She called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time, this time I will praise the Lord. 
Therefore, she called his name Judah, and she ceased bearing. The names reflected a couple of things. I'm sure you noticed. First, their names reflected what she desired from her husband. She desired his love. She desired his companionship. She didn't want to just feel attracted. Uh, She didn't want him just to be attracted to her. She wanted to be connected to him. But it also reflected what she believed and how she felt about the Lord. She knew that he had seen her and would continue to see her. She knew that he had heard her and would continue to hear her. She knew the circumstances that she was in, but she knew that he hadn't abandoned her. And by the time she gave birth to Judah, the fourth time, fourth, fourth, fourth son, by the time she gave birth to Judah, her cries for her husband to meet her needs had changed to the Lord meeting her needs. I also know that there are in the room tonight those who've been mistreated, you've been used, you've been broken, you've been abandoned, you feel alone and isolated. And I want you to know that the Lord has seen you and continues to see you. The Lord has heard you and continues to hear you. He has not only taken on the shame of your own sin, He has taken on the shame of the sin that has been perpetrated against you. And He can and will restore you. You have... You have an advocate at the throne of grace who is pleading and interceding on your behalf. He knows you and loves you and will never betray you and never abandon you. So let me close with this. There's a great deal of significance in the fact that Leah was Judah's mother. It's a picture of salvation coming from one who is despised and rejected. And that's because not only would Levi's line come from Leah, right, the line through which the priests would come, but Judah would become the major, the predominant, the preeminent tribe of the nation of Israel. It is the line of Judah from which the Messiah, the Lord Christ, Jesus, the Savior of sinners, would come. And of course, we know that Jesus is the better Jacob. Listen to these words from the Apostle Peter. He he says this, he, Jesus... He, and I'm adding Jesus, he committed no sin, neither was there deceit in his mouth. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, 
that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. The eternal son left his rightful place at his father's right hand, left left all of the riches of heaven and took on flesh in order to search for his bride, the church. He humbled himself and he came to serve, not to be served. And he served to the point of death on the cross. The price he paid for his bride was the imperishable, or his own imperishable blood. And he did it because he loved the church. He loved his bride. He loved us. In the words of Paul, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And that love is not fickle. That love is not conditional. Neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor, any other, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from it. So, brothers and sisters, as you often hear from this pulpit, Jesus is the only hope of our salvation. And I pray that He would meet every need in this room tonight. Look to Him. And may we praise Him as He does. Let's pray. Father, by Your Spirit and grace, would You enable us to receive this Word with faith and love and lay it up in our hearts and practice it in our lives. For your glory and for our good and for the sake of Christ and his church, I pray. Amen.